One, two, one, two, three, four. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. It is your host, Sam Jacobs. We've got a great episode coming up for you this week. We've got Nick Mehta, the CEO of Gainsight, a very well-known SaaS CEO and executive, and one of the true pioneers when it comes to customer success. So Nick's going to talk to us all about customer success, how to measure it, how to think about it, what phases are important and relevant to your company when you're incorporating customer success. And he's also going to give us his point of view on why aliens have not yet visited the planet Earth, which is very useful, I think. But first, we want to thank our sponsors. We've got two, as usual. The first is Aircall. It's a phone system designed for the modern sales team. I hope at this point you've taken a look at Aircall, but it seamlessly integrates into your CRM, eliminating data entry for your reps, and it gives you greater visibility into your performance and your team's performance through advanced reporting. When it's time to scale, you can add new lines and minutes, which, as we all know, is a huge pain in the ass with other services. And you can use in-call coaching to reduce ramp time for your new reps. So the website is aircall.io forward slash sales hacker, uh, aircall.io forward slash sales hacker to see why Uber, Dun & Bradstreet, Pipedrive, and thousands of others trust Aircall for the most critical sales conversations. Our second sponsor is Outreach. Uh, that is outreach.io the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams and empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth. By prioritizing the right activities and scaling customer engagement with intelligent automation, Outreach makes customer-facing teams more effective and improves visibility into what really drives results. Hop over to outreach.io forward slash sales hacker to see how thousands of customers, including Cloudera, Glassdoor, Pandora, and Zillow, rely on Outreach to deliver higher revenue per sales rep. Now let's listen to Nick Mehta. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Sam Jacobs, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Welcome to another episode of the Sales Hacker Podcast. We're incredibly honored today to have, I was just doing some research, the number three CEO in all of SaaS, according to a recent study, Nick Mehta, the founder and CEO of Gainsight, the leading customer success platform, and in fact, the company and the individual that popularized the entire concept of customer success. Nick is a two-time entrepreneur, previously having started a SaaS platform called Live Office through its acquisition by Symantec. He was vice president at Veritas Software and Symantec Corporation. And uh, he's also a man of many and diverse interests. And we're excited to have him on the show. So welcome, Nick. Sam, thank you so much. Really, I don't know where that number three came from. I think my mom must have been voting on that website. <laughs> but um, really I, honored I to be here. a thousand of my own votes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome, but great to be here. We are really uh, and truly honored. And it's so important that, you know, we talk a lot about sales, but we need to have a holistic view of the customer. And I think that's something that we can dive into. So as we get started, I think, you know, there's to the point, there's probably a handful of people out there that don't know who you are. So give us a little bit of background on the company, the mission of the company, why you started the company, and we can go from there. Yeah, totally. So at Gainsight, we're really passionate about this concept of customer success. Now, just to put it in context for the audience here, we think customer success is the new way to think about sales. So very related to probably what folks on this phone or on this podcast are really thinking about, because you know we think that in new business models like subscription, SaaS, cloud, et cetera, customers have so much power and they can basically vote with their wallet. They can leave when they want to. They can decide not to spend more money. And so therefore, the old model of spending all your energy on customer acquisition and on building a product or service isn't enough. The old model is still important. You know, sales, honestly, I still think it's one of the hardest jobs out there. Marketing is hard. Product development's hard. 
But if you do all that and your customers aren't getting value, they're not using what they bought, they're not seeing ROI, they're not going to stay with you, they're not going to grow, and you're not going to grow. And so customer success is all about this idea that you need to have a proactive process after somebody buys to make sure they are getting value and using what they bought and hopefully that they'll stay with you and spend more money over time. And at Gainsight, we're all about enabling this transition for companies. Part of that transition is about people and processes. And so we've created a big community around customer success. And then part of it is about doing it in a scalable way. And so we build software to help automate and scale customer success and customer experience across your whole company. So tell us a little bit about the germination. Uh, what was the seed yeah. that sprouted the company? How did you get this idea? Yeah, totally. So give you a little bit of background. So it's, it's, it's funny when I talk about you know, customer success, I, I actually do start with my childhood in a strange way. My dad was an executive at Digital Equipment, which is an old company back in the 70s and 80s. And then he was a CEO of some small companies. Then I grew up, as Sam knows, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, go Steelers. And my dad, when I was a little kid, you know, eight years old, and he would tell me, hey, if you ever go into business, make sure you go into sales because once you get the customer, they're, they're stuck, they're with you. So it's all about getting customers, right? So I kind of grew up with the same mindset. I think most people on this podcast that we've all kind of lived, right? And sales, by the way, is super, super important and so critical and so strategic. But as I'll talk about, not enough. And I, I learned that because in my early career, as you alluded to, Sam, I was at some on-premise software companies, Veritas, Symantec, where we sold stuff where we customers paid a lot of money up front and they installed it and it was really hard to rip out and it was great. But fundamentally, whether they used it or not, whether they got value or not, we got paid, right? And it wasn't, wasn't bad. I mean, the job of getting value was just on the customer. And then I went to run my first business where the customer basically paid us on a monthly or annual basis, this company Live Office. I didn't found Live Office. I got hired to run it. And I was very excited to be in the cloud. You know, with the cloud, I was like, oh, this is awesome. You can scale more easily. You know, it's really the hot part of the market. But I learned the downside or the challenging part of running a business where customers kind of can hold you accountable, which is at the end of the day, you got to work to earn and keep the right to work with those customers. And so as the CEO of Live Office, I came in thinking I'm going to spend all my time on sales. And I ended up spending all my time on existing customers and customer success and building some custom systems to track our customers and understand how they're doing and you know understand whether they're going to renew or not and, and things like that. And so we sold the company to Symantec and I took some time off and I had been feeling this kind of itch of like, wow, I'm surprised that problem wasn't already solved. And you, you may not know this, Sam, I didn't come up with the idea for Gainsight. Um, there were two guys, um, Jim Eberlin and Sridhar Pedaneni, who had done another SaaS company and they had independently come up with this idea and Battery Ventures had met them as they were getting it started. And I just sold my last company, was looking for my next thing and kind of got connected to our two founders and I just fell in love with the idea. And so I joined as we were just getting started and, um, and really just saw this problem firsthand. When we were starting, obviously not a lot of people were talking about customer success, but here we are five years later and it's become a, a bigger thing. Thank you for that. I did not know that you weren't the sole individual founder. So that's, an, that's a, a great story. I think five years later, it has become a thing. And I think Gainsight has had a lot to do with it becoming a thing. If you're a new, you know, if you're a, a young founder or somebody starting a company or a salesperson thinking about how to put customer success and operationalize it in a company, what are some of the key tenets, in your opinion, that help create the perfect or an improved customer success experience? Yeah, it's great. Well, one of the things I'll say up front, I think customer success is a lot like sales and a lot like product development in that 
you're always going to be working at it and there's never a point where you're going to feel like you're done. Right. So in the simple analogy would be, what are the tenants to being great at sales? Right. And so obviously, as you know, very well, Sam, better than I do, that answer changes from when you're a startup to a bigger company changes based on whether you sell a high touch solution or something that can be bought over the web. The same is true with customer success. So one tenant is that you really have to understand your situation and figure out which advice applies to you. And the dimensions I think about are, where are you in the stage of the evolution of your company? And I'll give some examples there. And then the second big dimension is, what type of product are you selling and how high touch is it? A simple way to think about that is, what's your average selling price annual contract value? So let's go through those two dimensions. So if you're an early stage startup, customer success is mainly about learning and getting input to help build a better product. It's basically about really understanding the customer and what they're doing and what value they're getting so that you can build a product that's really part of finding product market fit. I, I know a lot of friends who have startups that are very early where the first person starting the company might be an engineer and the second hire is a customer success person. And it's not about renewals or retention or adoption. It's about learning. That's like, you know, one phase, right? The next phase you can think about is, okay, now I've got something and I kind of have some repeatability. How do I get people to really adopt it, right? And then you start getting people up to kind of contracts and the, the dollars add up. And then it starts thinking about how do I actually retain these customers? Even if they're adopting, how do I make sure they stay with me? Renewals, retention, things like that. And then, then eventually it can become about expansion. You know, how do I help my customers expand, right? So one dimension is thinking about where you are on that spectrum and where you're really prioritizing. The second dimension is how high touch is your business? So if you're selling million dollar a year contracts, Customer success is very customer specific, understanding their objectives, managing kind of their deployment, right? If you're selling $100 a year contracts, it's got to be totally automated, what we call tech touch, you know, te using technology to provide a high touch experience. So think about those two dimensions of where you're on the spectrum and what size kind of deal you have. And that'll help you figure out the types of playbooks that are going to be relevant for you. We can share some more, but that's a starting point. Yeah, no, it's very useful. So are there key motions or activities that sort of define, in your opinion, even at an early stage customer success? I have sort of two questions. That's one question, you know, is it, is it just sort of reaching out to the customer on an ongoing basis or are there different phases and segments uh, across the customer journey? And then the second question I have, which is sort of related, but maybe too tangential to bucket into one is, are account management and customer success the same thing in your opinion? And to what extent do you always mandate or have a belief about revenue being included in sort of one of the KPIs that customer success is measured against. Great. Awesome. Well, you just asked like all the questions. I love it. These are the, the biggest <laughs> exactly. questions. These are like, you know, you can imagine I get asked these kinds of questions kind of every day and, and there really is a set of ones that people ask a lot. So number one, let's talk about process. So I, customer success as a process shows up in different forms based on where you are in your maturity curve. Like I talked about in what size of company you're selling to. And, and you can bucket it into what I would call inside-out processes and outside-in processes. So very simplistically, the inside-out processes are about what are your goals as a company and how is customer success helping to drive to those goals? Simple things like who's not adopting the product? How do I get them to adopt it? Who hasn't used a new feature? How do I get them to use it? Who's at risk of not renewing? How do I get them to you know, have a higher chance of renewing? That type of thing, right? And so that's kind of what I would call the inside out journey. It's, it's you know, not the customer's journey, but your journey, right? And that's important. But what's really powerful as you mature is the outside in journey. That's like, what is a customer trying to accomplish, right? What are their goals? 
where are they? they? You know, I don't think there's ever been a customer that's thinking about the relationship with the vendor and saying, I'm in the renewal phase of my relationship <laughs> or I'm in the adoption <laughs> phase, right? They're not, they're just trying to bring, they're trying to get some value. They're trying to drive revenue or make their customers happy. And so I think customer success at a process level is about blending inside out, you know, what you're trying to accomplish and outside in and thinking about the things you're doing in both dimensions. So as an example, inside out might be, you know, looking for everyone that is declining in usage of your product. That's a very simple thing. You can do that, right? And that's important. And outside in is capturing the client's goals up front when they bought and then tracking whether you're achieving those or not. That's sort of the way to think about that. And we can come back to that. You go to your second question, because it's a great one. Is account management the same as customer success? How do you tie those together? This is probably the most common question I get and maybe a different way to state it is, who owns revenue and renewals in these recurring revenue businesses? So let me start with a premise that we talk about at GameSite, which is customer success is more than customer success management. And the context there is, there may be a job called customer success manager in your company, CSM, and that's a great job and important. But customer success is about the entire customer experience, bringing everyone together to drive towards this positive outcome for the customer and renewal and expansion for your business, right? And in some companies, they're going to segment the roles and they're going to say, okay, to achieve customer success, we're going to have a CSM that's all about value and adoption, but doesn't have a quota, right? They're just about driving value and adoption. We're going to have an account manager that drives renewal and expansion, the actual commercial side of it, right? So that's kind of a a segmented role. So maybe a, a hunting rep closes a deal and then these two people work together, a CSM for adoption value and account manager for renewal and expansion. That That's very common, especially in businesses where there's a lot of commercial complexity after the sale and you don't want the CSM to have to deal with the renewal. In other companies, you go from a model where the sales rep closes the deal and the CSM manages both the, the value and adoption and the commercial aspects of the relationship, right? So in that model, the CSM is the person after the sale doing everything. So going to your question, is that CSM just an account manager? No, absolutely not. Because the traditional account management job was purely about the commercial, right? It was about making sure the renewal comes in. I always joke that the account manager always seems to magically reach out 90 days before the renewal saying how they've been thinking about you for a long time, right? I've been thinking (laughs) about your business since you bought, right? But the reality is it's like, oh, wow, it's convenient that it's 90 days to renewal. So the CSM model is much more an evergreen model. You're working on that customer throughout the life cycle. So CSM is not the same thing as account manager, but customer success can certainly include account managers as part of this larger strategy. Do you have a preference on uh, which model you like? Do you prefer having the customer success team not have a revenue orientation or a quota? Or do you like tying things ultimately, maybe it's just one of the KPIs, but ultimately tying the customer success team to some kind of retention goal? Great question. So, you know, I'm actually writing a blog post on this as we speak. So we think over time, there's a question of what the customer success team owns and meaning like, let's say there's a chief customer officer or a head of customer success, and then what an individual CSM owns. And let me break down the different models, right? So one model is your classic traditional model, which is I've got a chief revenue officer. They own all revenue. The sales reps own everything from new business to renewal. You know, there's no hunter farmer. And then CSM is just about adoption and value. I think that works in very high touch businesses where, you know, let's say a work day, right? Where you got huge contracts, lots of upsell, lots of renew- you know, complex renewals, sticky product. And so that's the traditional model. Sales keep doing exactly what you've been doing. No hunter farm or anything else. C- 
CSM, just about adoption value. But let's call that model one. Model two is, okay, I've got a hunter rep and I've got an account manager rep. The hunter does the new business, account manager does renewal and expansion. They both report into the CRO. And I've got a CSM org over here responsible for adoption value. And, and that's, you know, that's pretty common. I think that's actually probably one of the more common models in SaaS. And some of you on the phone on the podcast might be in that model. Model three is you say, look, I want that sales leader to actually be really focused on new business. So I'm actually going to move the account managers under the CS leader. And I'm seeing that more and more. If you want to get, have your sales leader really focused on new. And by the way, like the CS leader is the one thinking about the customers every day. So it sometimes fits more naturally. You might flip big expansions back to the sales team in that model, but small expansions and renewals would be done by an account manager sitting in the CS org. And then model four is, hey, I'm going to actually have the sales team do new business and maybe big expansion. And I'm actually going to have the, the CSM do the renewal and the adoption in value. And that's going to sit in the CS org, right? So you can see this as have kind of an evolution. What I'm seeing and what I'm recommending is, in general, the CS org needs to be able to point to some part of revenue and say, I drove that, right? Whether they have the account managers reporting into them, whether the account managers report into sales, but they have a really tight relationship, or whether the CSM themselves do the revenue, you know, they're different models. But the number one recommendation is the CS leader needs to be really well tied to revenue. The second thing is, I think as you get bigger and you get more efficient, there is a goal to move more revenue into CSM. It doesn't happen overnight, and I think most startups probably wouldn't want to do it. But as you get bigger, there's an efficiency to it. So I talked to a lot of at-scale companies, and they're trying to move more of the revenue into CSM because, frankly, the cost structure is lower, and it lets sales really focus. So those two trends give the CS leader revenue responsibility for existing customers, and then eventually consider giving the CSM, but maybe do that later in the process. And is it 100% of the time that, in your opinion, the CS function is always separate from kind of like the, the acquisition slash sales function, and that CS function is reporting directly to the CEO? Great question. So there's definitely a mix. You know, we see CS leaders reporting into a chief revenue officer, especially if it's a very senior person, you know, that can work really well. I think that if that happens, that chief revenue officer really needs to be more like a president. They need to be able to look at the whole life cycle and not just be the sales leader who happens to also own CS, right? You probably, if you're on this, listening to this, and you, you've probably been in a situation before where you're either the person running an org or you've inherited something that you're not really passionate about, or you're the person working for somebody where you're that like second priority they're not really passionate about. That's a terrible situation. So if the CS team's going to report to a CRO or a president, they better be just as passionate about existing customers as they are about new sales. And I think that model can then work. I've seen companies do that well. But in a model where the sales leader is really focused on sales, there's a benefit to splitting them out. If you said, what's the mix? I think it's actually reasonably even between those two models in companies. You know, I think that there's some CROs and presidents that are really, really strategic and think about the whole life cycle and they can own the whole thing. And there's some sales leaders that really want to focus on sales, which is great too, right? And so I'd say it's probably reasonably split within SaaS between those two models. It resonates what you're saying because sometimes, you know, my title is chief revenue officer and I personally oversee, you know, CS and account management. And when I'm in the meetings with our existing customers, I really wish I was called chief customer officer sometimes because I don't want yeah. to give the impression that the only thing I care about is their money. I really want to give them the impression, which is the truth, that I care about their success. That's a really good point, Sam, because I, you know, and I've even seen some sales leaders literally change their title to something like that, like chief customer officer for that reason. So 
Now, I will say one of the other comments that is important to think about is there is some benefit to the separation of responsibilities in a high growth company. Focus, obviously, having a sales leader versus a CS leader, there's a focus thing. And then I think there's a healthy dynamic, too. You know, this is not easy stuff, right? Like, when do you push on the expansion versus driving value? When do you do a price increase? In some companies, there's a healthy tension between the sales leader and the CS leader that can help get to the right decision for the customer and for the business. Yeah. I mean, again, and that's, I think part of the CEO's job in the organizational design is to create constructive aligned tension as opposed yeah, to right. unconstructive tension. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you wrote a blog post back in May about how to manage your customer life cycle from the customer's perspective. And it was a little bit about what you had sort of touched on briefly, which is this outside in perspective. There's a lot of folks out there that are starting to think about this concept of the customer journey, this concept of moments of truth, which you articulate. Walk us through a little bit of that framework. Yeah, absolutely. So you're going back to this idea of outside in customer success, right? So really thinking about that customer journey from their vantage point. Again, if your customer journey stages are adoption, expansion, renewal, that's probably not what the customer is thinking, right? So the customer is, you know, there's a lot of different terminology people use, you know, they're trying to figure out what vendor to work with and decide whether they're the right one and start getting value and expand that value, right? They, the terminology they might think about, right? And so what we believe is there's an opportunity to design a customer journey from their vantage point and really build that as a holistic journey. Let's talk about post-sale just to make it simple, right? So somebody, you know, they signed that docky sign or echo sign or whatever else he used and everyone rings the gong, super exciting moment. I always joke that it's much more exciting for the vendor at that point than the customer. <laughs> the customer isn't celebrating, right? They just agreed to spend a lot of money. But now you're in this world, right, where they've got expectations. You know, that's actually one of the biggest things to think about. They've got these expectations. I mean, you know, Sam, you're a great salesperson. You probably are awesome at getting people excited about expectations. And great salespeople have such a good service in this role. Okay, now how do I make sure those expectations are continued? Uh, they're transferred over to the onboarding team or customer success team. There's not that letdown. I think all of us have seen that letdown that happens after the sale. All of us have, as vendors and customers have seen it, right? And then how do you design a journey that does the following things? Number one, looks for the ideal path. Some people call that the happy path, right? So what are the things I expect that customer to be doing if they're walking down that good path? They, they should be doing these things by 90 days in, you know, using the product in this way, you know, getting this kind of value. They should have met with us to do a QBR. And so you've kind of mapped out this happy path and maybe automated some of it and figured out who does what, you know, built kind of responsibility chart, et cetera. And then you've identified when are people taking off ramps for that journey? They bought and they haven't enabled the licenses. They, they got an invite to the training class and they never took it. They deployed, but then they never tried out the new features, right? So those are like the off-ramps if it's like a highway. And then how do you figure out ways to get people back on that highway when they take those off-ramps, right? That could be through an account manager reaching out, a CSM reaching out, an automated email, an in-app message. How are you getting them back onto that path? So design the journey with the customer's kind of goals in mind identify the happy path, measure whether they're on it. And then when they take an off-ramp, get them back onto that, that journey. Yeah. It's, and, and one of the things that you wrote about, which I think is, again, it sort of resonated with me, is this concept of moments of truth where sort of these right. key inflection points along the journey. Totally, yeah. In kind of customer experience lingo, moment of truth is basically those really critical things that happen, whether it's like 
the first time you use a product or your first kickoff meeting or your first quarterly business review where the person's building an impression of who this vendor is and what this experience is going to be like. And how do you make sure those moments are really, really great? Like maybe bringing marketing into them, brainstorming, how to make them really positive, tracking whether they didn't go well. That's why I think sales, like sales job doesn't stop. You know, I mean, especially if you have an ongoing relationship with a customer, how are you coming in in those moments of truth to really make them outstanding, make sure the customer doesn't feel left behind, you know, things like that. So the other thing I'd say is this isn't just about, you know, making customers happy. It's, it's easy to listen to this stuff and say, oh, this is great. I want to make our customers happy. That's awesome. This is about accelerating new path to expansion fundamentally, right? So it's not just about minimizing churn. When you think about it as a salesperson, you work so hard to move fast on getting a deal, right? I'm, I'm sure Sam, you, you've managed many teams and you've been around probably in the past. You're just like, how do I do something tomorrow instead of next week? How do I get the customer to do the demo today? How do I get through that blocker tomorrow? And what ends up happening is after the sale, it's like everyone moves into like a slowdown cruise control, your kind of joy ride, you know, versus like going full insanity mode, you know, as fast as I can. Right. And how do you actually accelerate that post-sale journey so that there's a faster path to expanding, to buying new products, to being an advocate? I really think one of the best ways to grow faster is reduce the time for your customers to get to that initial value and to the point where they can expand. So the customer journey isn't just about happiness. It's about growth. Yeah, that makes a, a tremendous amount of sense. Another blog post and another topic that I'm sure you're asked about a lot, and that I think every company thinks through, which is is not just it should revenue be included in the customer success or account management role, but what are the KPIs? And you know, for a time, NPS was the acronym of the day, and everything was about NPS. I think that there's a debate between gross revenue retention and net revenue retention. It would be interesting first to get a framing for the possibilities of what all the different KPIs uh, and measurements of the success of customer success could be. And then, as always, we, we would love your, your opinion on which one you prefer. Totally. So the way I like to think about this that we talk about internally is you have lagging indicators, which are the end goals, but, but not necessarily things that you, you change right away. And you have the leading indicators, which kind of show you whether you're on the right path or not. So in sales, you know, lagging indicator might be new bookings, new ARR, and the leading indicator might be pipeline generation, right? Everyone listening to this is familiar with that. So in the world of customer success and account management, there basically are three core lagging indicators. Fundamentally, customer success is about doing three things for the business, you know, improving retention and renewals, improving expansion, and improving new business through better customer advocacy. Those are the three like really big things you're driving, right? And I'm going to come back to gross versus net because that's obviously a big, big discussion there. What we find in general is you want to measure your customer success team on a mix of lagging and leading indicators. Let's assume you just measured on lagging, right? Let's say, for example, renewals. The problem fundamentally you have then is every quarter, your incentive is to work on the things that drive this quarter's numbers, but you have no incentive to work on the things that drive, you know, two quarters out. But the reality is customer success, the biggest lever is being proactive to those customers two or three quarters from renewing. So that's why most people in customer success look at a mix of lagging indicators and then leading. And then from a leading perspective, what you're looking at is what are those things that directionally tie to retention, expansion, and advocacy? And as you said, NPS can be one of those. What we found is it's important to think about customer health holistically and look at lots of different data points. It's very, very weak correlation to look at one of these data points and think it drives everything. So NPS is a good example. 
in the consumer world where NPS was created, you and I, when we buy shop on Amazon or we buy, you know, a Sonos uh, music system, basically our experience is tied directly to our likelihood to buy again because we are both the user, the decision maker, the economic buyer, right? Like, you know, maybe we're not always the economic buyer, depending on how your household works, but we're, we're actually, <laughs> we, we're, we're, it's a simple sales process, right? And so therefore NPS works super well in a B2C business. In a B2B business, which I think a lot of people on, on this podcast are, are responsible for, the challenge is that you have lots of people and you might have great promoters giving you great feedback, but maybe they're not the decision makers or maybe they leave during that process and somebody new comes in. And so many studies have shown NPS is not on its own directly correlated to retention or expansion in B2B. We've done those studies. There's a, there's a good study online about this as well. And so because of that, what we find is you need to look at a holistic view where you look at each customer and you score them and you look at things like adoption, um, their engagement with you, or they come into your meetings or they come into your events, their NPS is an indicator of their support. And that leading indicator is, you know, what a lot of people, almost most companies now do some kind of health score, right? And you're looking at each customer. And in that example, if they give you a really negative feedback on NPS, that probably really is bad for your health score, right? So people that are detractors are likely to churn, but people that are the promoters doesn't mean they're likely to renew, right? So you're going to look at a multifactorial view and build a score. And then that's what you're optimizing. How do I make my customers more healthy? And then that drives retention, expansion, and advocacy. Now let's get back to your other question, gross or net? Such a great question. Most people in customer success today focus on gross. I believe the trend in the future is more people are going to start doing net. Not everyone. Now let me describe how I think about this. Gross retention, which if you don't know, is all about measuring as a, up to 100% what dollars you retain from your existing customers, but without the getting the benefit of existing customers expanding more. So the most you can get is 100%. And in gross, um, it really forces you to focus on saving customers, right? It's all about minimizing kind of leakage or loss. And that's great, I think, in the early days of a company, because many companies are under-optimized, and they have a lot of people that leave that really should be staying. And I think for a while, focusing on gross is really important. But at some point, you get to what I'd call an efficient level of gross retention. If you're an enterprise business, if you're in the 90s, you're probably reasonably efficient in gross retention. If you're an SMB-oriented business, if you're in the 80s, you're probably reasonably efficient. You can still move it a little bit, but at some point, you know, there might be customers that you just can't save and there's not much more you can do, and your energy might be better spent taking your good customers and making them great. And that's where net retention comes in. Because then you have an opportunity to make more than 100% by expanding your customers. And if you look at the publicly traded companies, the best publicly traded companies all have very high net retention. So we believe that in the early days of a CS team, gross is totally where you should focus. But as you grow and, and think about things, net retention is where you'll end up adding more value over time. I have a very specific tactical question before we move on. So first, thank you. That was incredibly helpful. If when we're thinking about gross retention on dollars, if a customer downsizes, if they go from 50 seats to 40 seats, is that penalized even though the expansion from 50 to 60 is not credited in the gross calculation? Totally. Gross retention is, is pretty gross. It's pretty tough. You, you get no benefit from the upside and you only get the downside. That's why actually, if you, if you come from a sales background, like in sales, you can lose a deal and you can make it up by winning another deal, right? Or maybe the second deal is bigger than the first. Customer success is tough because you never make it up on a gross retention basis. In the example you talked about, if somebody goes from 50 to 40 and somebody else goes from 50 to 60, you get no benefit in the gross calculation from the 50 to 60 and you take the penalty 
in the gross calculation from the 50 to the 40. So it's a tough bar. Yeah, it seems difficult. Um, so all of this has been incredibly helpful. And then, and then there's the other side of sort of your story, which is, you know, there's a thing that Gainsight does, but then there's you as an individual. I think it's always inspiring um, to, hear, to hear the story of a CEO. When you think about the success that you've had, what do you attribute it to? You know, do, do you have sort of lessons or guiding principles that, that you share with colleagues? Is it the values that are part of Gainsight, like childlike joy? Sort of, how do you think about you know, your success in your career and what advice would you give to the folks listening? Yeah, I mean, well, one thing I would say is we believe we've just gotten started at Gainsight, so I don't think any of us ever internally talk about what's the reason for our success. We talk about how we can be much bigger and have a bigger impact and really achieve our mission. So it's funny how things look on the outside versus the inside. We want to do something very substantial. But I think that, you know, what's allowed us to get to where we're at in the last five years, and, and more importantly, I think what's allowed the whole customer success community it, it, to get to where it's at is I think a few things like which probably transferable to any company. Number one, I do think that having a tailwind in your area of business is massive, right? Some companies don't have a tailwind. They don't sell into something that's growing or, or new, but having the fact that, you know, more companies are becoming and SaaS and, Therefore, they need customer success. And that's clearly been something where the timing couldn't have been better for what we're doing. And we're really, really fortunate and lucky to be in that situation. That's number one. Number two, I think that what's kind of unique with Gainsight and customer success is it's not only a business trend, it's a new profession, as, as we alluded to, right? Customer success leaders, customer success managers, almost every day from CEOs and VCs, I get questions about you know, can you help me find a customer success leader for my company? Can you help me find a, a chief customer officer? So it's a growing profession. LinkedIn actually lists it as the third most promising job in America in 2018. So wow. I think the second thing we've been really fortunate about is a, this is a growing profession. And then I think what we did, which one of the things we did, which I think has really helped is we focused our company, not just on software, right? We do build software and we think it's great and really adds value. But our main mission is to enable companies to make this transition to customer success and make the profession of customer success really successful, right? So we run, um, I say success a lot, by the way. <laughs> we run this conference on customer success called Pulse, as, as you know, Sam. And it's not about Gainsight. In the early days, we made it about the industry and we talked about, you know, compensation and customer success and career pathing and making your employees happy and working with sales and all these different things. So we really made it about the job, not about us. And I think that's something that we've just been fortunate to make the right bet there. You know, we wrote a book on customer success. We created an online university to pe teach people customer success. We've taught thousands of people CS. We, we have a job board to help people find jobs. So the thing I think we did uh, uh, within this opportunity is really focus on the job and the profession, not just the software. And then finally, as you alluded to, we're a very values-driven company. We, we talk about our company's values as being what we call human first as sort of the kind of umbrella over everything. Really trying to think about business, not just like if you remember the Godfather quote that it's not personal, it's business. We flip that. We say it's not business, it's personal. I personally don't think that, that the mindset that like taking everything is business and not realizing there's human beings involved, I think that's a very reductive mindset. And frankly, people spend so much of their lives at work. I can think of no bigger impact you can have as a CEO than having the people that you work with get meaning out of their jobs. And so we have this concept of human first business and we apply that both to our employees, right? And our teammates and their families and the, the values that we run, but also to our community. We're real big fans that 
you need a holistic integrated view between your company and your customers or your community. And we think of having a human first approach to everything. As an example, all of us at Gainsight spend a ton of time trying to help people in their careers, find jobs, figure out the next step, get mentored. I spend probably an hour a day on that with one CS leader, one CSM or another, because we do think this is about human beings. It's not just about business. Some of the decisions that you've made, like putting you know, values and articulating those values as you scale, is that intuition? Is it learned from lessons at live office? Like, How did you figure all this out, how to be a CEO? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I figured it out yet. There's so much more. Every time you think you figured it out, like a few years later, you realize you did, didn't have it figured out. I'll tell you the two things that for the value specifically that have driven it. Number one, for us and for me specifically in our, for our company, it's actually not the how, it's the why. Basically, at the end of the day, you have to have some reason that you work and do what you do. And we're all, many people listening to this are fortunate to have multiple options of what they do. And for us, doing a job without having some sense of meaning and purpose just wouldn't be fulfilling. And since we're not flying rockets onto Mars or like curing cancer, you know, how do you find purpose in your work in kind of a enterprise software business? And for us, it's been the purpose around how you, you work with people and treat people. And that's like, if we didn't have that, none of us would really find fulfillment in our jobs. We just wouldn't do it, right? So it's actually, for some companies, I think values become like the how or the what. And that's fine. I think for us, it's the why, which makes it really powerful. Then the second thing is, in my first company, I've, I've always had this feeling like I need some greater satisfaction from work beyond just you know making money and selling stuff and all that. All of those things are great. But I think I wasn't as confident about it. So we had values at Live Office. I think I'm more confident that you can pick your own path as a CEO. That's like one of the biggest things I've learned. I actually really respect you know, the CEOs that are hundred percent about making money. I think that's very authentic. They are who they are. Right. I feel like as a CEO, you can take your path and your approach. And for me, we want to make money. We want to be a successful business. We want to be around a long time, but our why is our values and our purpose. And I think as a CEO, you have the right to choose your why. The why is not handed down from you from like the capitalist gods. The why can be whatever you want it to be. And we've gotten confident in what our why is. I think that's inspiring. We're coming to the end of our time and I have a few more questions. One of them, as I alluded to over email, is not going to be about customer success or sales at all. But before we get there, is there an ICP for Gainsight? You know, you've got people listening if they want to become yeah. customers. They're a specific type of firm. You know, when I've talked to you guys in the past as a potential customer, it seems like it's an enterprise first business. But tell us, you know, if we're out there listening and we want to become a customer of Gainsight, who is sort of the perfect fit? Yeah, it's interesting. We started probably more enterprise oriented and got lots of great, you know, customers like Box and Workday and Okta and many others. Lots of like kind of traditional companies like IBM and Cisco and Adobe. And But now it's actually expanded a lot. So when we think about it, the first thing is what type of business you are. And the second thing is where you are in your maturity curve. So type of business now, we think of three kinds of businesses that we sell to. Born in the cloud companies, probably many people listening, the, the SaaS businesses that started that way reborn in the cloud companies, right? Those are the companies that might've started with hardware or software and moving to cloud and SaaS models. And then companies going through digital transformation that, you know, for example, GE is a customer of ours as they've gone through their digital transformation. So that's the type of company. Now the size in the early days, we were more kind of mid market and enterprise, you know, hundred employees and higher kind of thing. And now we've actually figured out ways to both in terms of onboarding and kind of you know, lighter versions of the product to be able to serve companies, you know, typically starting about 50 employees. And usually it's somebody that 
you know, has some kind of customer success initiative, maybe has the inkling of a CSM team, and is trying to figure out how they think about scaling that. One of the other things we find is our relationship with clients is not just about the software. You know, we have a great community. We have lots of tiny startups that come to our events and learn. And obviously, over time, hopefully, some of them will become customers as well. But, you know, we think anyone in the customer success journey, we'd love to engage with them. And typically with our software, you know, kind of 50 and higher in terms of employees. That's fantastic. Two last questions. So if we, we have a little part of the podcast where we like to pay it forward a little bit to the point of helping other people and sort of following the breadcrumb trail. If you're thinking about key influences or key pieces of content that you want us to know about, whether it's books you've read that have really influenced you or sales leaders or other founders that you really respect or investors, what are some ways that we can sort of figure out what made Nick Meta, Nick Meta? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how you're like, but I, I kind of feel like, feel so lucky that there's so many amazing people that work in business and technology that I learned from. Um, it's almost like, who, where do you start? So I'm going to just, I'll rattle off some just that have inspired me. And, you know, I think that this is just a, a partial list if, if I forgot anyone. So, you know, one person that, you know, actually I, I um, remembered meeting Aaron Levy, who's the founder and CEO of Box, when Box was just getting started. And his passion to build something that's kind of built to last long term and that like he's going to always be shooting to do something bigger. And you can just see how much he believes in this company. I think that's super inspiring. I was fortunate enough to meet Teen Zuo, who's the CEO of Zora and founder Zora, which is obviously very relevant to Gainsight because they also sell into the subscription-based world and kind of coined the term subscription economy. Teen was, I think, employee six at Salesforce. So he picks them pretty well. And he sort of been at the world of SaaS from the very beginning and provide a lot of guidance to me over time, which I really appreciate. Another person, maybe some folks may not know, Jennifer Tejada, who's a CEO of a company called PagerDuty, which is a really cool IT operations software product. But the way Jennifer runs her company, and in particular, commitment to diversity and inclusion and values is something that's very, very inspiring to me in terms of just how she thinks about her business and how she runs it and, and things like that. So those are three people that, that kind of jump to mind and like, I can probably think of more if you give me more time. <laughs> any great books that you think we should read? Uh, yeah. That, you know, yeah. What's your, yeah, great. Including so, yours, yeah. tell us the name of your book. <laughs> so we wrote a book called Customer Success, which is obviously the best one ever. Uh, no, but it's a good, if you're trying to fall asleep at night, it's great. Uh, sleep <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. But yeah, it, it's actually got, it's interesting. It sold 50,000 copies, which is a lot for a business book. We had no idea it would take off and, it's really become very popular. So I do think people find a lot of value from reading it. Besides that, you know, I think the first time I read The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, who's a you know, famous venture capitalist, former CEO, it's a really, really good book to explain how business isn't all glory and rainbows and unicorns. It's actually pretty hard. And there's some grittiness to the stories in that book that make, that at least for me, have helped me get through some of the tougher days. So that book is in particular, I think, really, really good. There's a book actually that's probably less well-known called Nonviolent Communication. It's actually a book that I heard that Satya Nadella, I've never met Satya before, but CEO of Microsoft, recommended um, to his, his team. And it's about basically how do you actually build a team that can communicate in ways that are really, really constructive. You know, some people know Microsoft used to be very confrontational back in the day. And I do believe that there's an opportunity to drive constructive interactions. And then I, I'll give a plug for one, because I'm I'm very passionate about diversity inclusion and Emily Chang's book, Brotopia. I think if you work in technology, understanding kind of how we got to the world we're at and the opportunity to change that. Um, we, we were fortunate to have Emily come do a talk at Gainsight. And she's amazing. She's a reporter at Bloomberg. 
And she wrote this amazing book just talking about how much work we have to do to drive inclusion in technology. And I think that's an important book for people to read. That's fantastic. Okay, here we are at the last non-work-related question. We talked about this over email. So Fermi paradox, what is your answer for those not in the know? It's the paradox that the Drake equation would imply that aliens would have already visited the Earth, but they don't seem to have. Nick, what do you think? Oh my God, this is great. So this, this is... Uh, <laughs> I, I, can we do another hour on this? Uh, this yeah, is easy I could, I so could if you spend six hours on this, but... I if you don't know, definitely, I found a, a nerdy pal in Sam here. I'm definitely into physics and philosophy and thought experiments like this. And, you know, basic thing to the context is, you know, the universe is huge. There's hundreds and hundreds of billions of stars and hundreds and hundreds of billions of galaxies. So if you do the probability, there's probably life somewhere. And it probably, you know, has been around for a long time. So how come we haven't seen it yet? And, um, and actually, I, it's funny, there's many answers. If you go Google the Wikipedia article on this, it's hilarious. There's so many answers to what could, why we haven't met aliens yet. One of them is actually that they've already been here, but we just can't see them. So I, I do think that in the future, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling how much things could change and you know how people could travel and learn about the universe and how much broader it is than what we know, experience today, and including the theory that from string theory, there's many dimensions to the universe it's possible there's aliens there hidden in other dimensions. So maybe I'll vote on that one with a little bit I, of I tongue in cheek. That's a good one. I think I like it. My standard answer is that it's a simulation and we are living Oh my in God, one. that's a great one too. That's, a, <laughs> that's Elon, Elon and you can hang out next time. Yeah, so. I know. Uh, well, and, then, and then the last thing I'll say about it, and then we, we can part ways. But first of all, thank you so much for your time today. The last update on the Fermi thing is that there's been some new paper. It basically says all of the variables in the Drake equation are way overstated. And the reason that we haven't been visited is because it doesn't exist, which is which for me is, uh, is incredibly depressing. But that's no uh, fun. Nick, let's, not, yeah, let's not yeah, believe that one. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. We really, really appreciate it. And candidly, we appreciate your emphasis on customer success, I think. The business world appreciates that. I also, every time I asked you a question just now about you individually, you always said we, and you brought it back to the people that you work with in the company. And that's, it makes the value seem incredibly authentic. So thanks for coming on the show. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, are you okay with that? Is there a preferred mechanism or is it, you know, follow you on Twitter, which is a perfectly acceptable answer? Oh yeah. There's like a million ways, certainly Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm actually, it's easy. I'm just N-M-E-H-T-A at gamesite.com. And you know, just another person just like you. So always happy to chat with other folks. Wonderful. Well, Nick, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Sam. Have a great day. Hey, everybody. This is Sam's Corner. We were honored to have Nick Mehta on the show, CEO of Gainsight. It was a great conversation, and you can tell when people are really, really effective public speakers because every one of his thoughts was sort of delivered in paragraph, perfectly articulated, coherent, and, uh, and insightful. A couple things to take away, one of them is this emphasis on gross retention versus net retention. Gross is essentially all of the dollars that you keep, but not including any of the dollars that you expand, and net is including expansion dollars. At the beginning, you want to focus on gross, is what Nick said. And then as you grow, you need to demonstrate net expansion. And I think 
we probably all know some of the stats, but we're looking for 120%, 130% net revenue retention, meaning including expansion for a grade A SaaS company. And we're looking at 90% plus for a gross revenue retention, which is not exactly the same thing as a unit renewal rate, but it's pretty close. Nick is also talking about having customer success organization report directly to the CEO. Sometimes it includes revenue responsibility, sometimes it doesn't, but you're looking for the leading indicators and the lagging indicators. So the leading indicators are product adoption, net promoter score, customer satisfaction, understanding the roles of the company that are filling out those surveys. And then, of course, the lagging indicator is money. Uh, Money typically happens at the end of things, not the beginning. Final thing is just if you heard him talk, and I mentioned it in the interview, the values shine through. And if you're thinking about growing your company, one of the things Nick mentioned was there's a why, which is, you know, the, the famous Simon Sinek. People don't care what you do. They, they want to know why you do it. And so a lot of people say start with why. What is your why? But I think that's really important for companies to figure out why do you exist? And I think as Nick also mentioned, it's okay if the answer is just to make money. Just be true to yourself when you're answering that question. Now, to check out the show notes, see upcoming guests, and play more episodes from our incredible lineup of sales leaders, visit saleshacker.com and head to the podcast tab. You'll find us on iTunes or Google Play or anywhere that you enjoy podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, or elsewhere. And if you want to get in touch with me, find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs or at linkedin.com slash in slash Sam F. Jacobs. Once again, big shout out to our sponsors for this episode, Aircall. Your advanced call center software, complete business phone, and contact center 100% natively integrated into any CRM, and Outreach, a customer engagement platform that helps efficiently and effectively engage prospects to drive more pipeline and close more deals. I will see you next time.